You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm mystified constantly by the the debate in the country about birth control because it's always framed as a women's issue or a woman's issue. Birth control, birth control, access to birth control, whether the Affordable Care Act is going to cover birth control, whether private employers should be able to deny birth control coverage in their healthcare packages to their employees because for moral reasons or religious reasons, they disapprove of birth control, which is a real Pandora's box because – what happens then if that's okayed by the Supreme Court and then you have a private employer who for religious reasons disapproves of cohabitation, disapproves of premarital sex, disapproves of masturbation? At what point do you – anyway, where does that end? But anyway, we always talk about access to birth control, birth control issues as if it is something that impacts women alone, as if birth control is something lesbians need when they have sex to stop them from reproducing somehow. Birth control is something straight dudes need, their wives and girlfriends to have access to if straight dudes want to be able to have sex with women, straight and bi dudes, want to be able to have sex with straight and bi women without making fucking babies that they do not want and cannot take care of at this stage of their lives. And that's not just youth and childhood and premarital. 77% of married women use birth control to plan their families and to control their – the rate at which they pop out children because not everybody wants to be a dugger when they grow up or should be. Nor could the planet sustain that kind of quiverful bullshit nonsense if it caught on more widely. And so we've been treated once again to a huge new argument about access to birth control courtesy of Mike fucking Huckabee who said – the Democrats want to insult the women of America by making them believe that they are helpless without Uncle Sugar coming in and providing them with a prescription each month for birth control because they cannot control their libido or their reproductive system without the help of the government. That's Mike Huckabee's characterization of – in his twisted little sex-negative paranoid Fox News fried mind of the Democrats' policy on women, that – the Democrats think so little of women that the Democrats don't think women can control their libidos or close their legs. So the Democrats want to shower women with birth control pills as a part of their health care packages. And this kicked off a big media shitstorm and we're back to square dumb, square one, where the Republicans after the 2012 election said that they had to figure out a way to – reach out and make inroads to constituencies and groups that were voting against them in great numbers. Obama took the women's vote by 11 percentage points. So Republicans had to figure out how to talk to women and and there's a whole cottage industry that sprung up around helping Republicans learn how to talk to women. They've had workshops where they've tried to encourage Republicans to stop saying things like legitimate rape. There are now consultancies, consulting agencies, lobbyists who do nothing but help the Republicans craft their message for women. But their message for women is basically you're a whole fucking bunch of sluts and the country would be better off if you would just stop fucking. And I wonder how that message sits with the straight men of America. Do you really want your wives and girlfriends to control their libidos? Do you really want them to stop fucking you? 
you would think that the vast majority of sexually active adults, male and female, would be insulted and angered by the Republican talking points on birth control. You would think that straight guys would regard a political party that wants to make sure that your girlfriend can't have birth control pills as a threat, not just to your girlfriend, but to, to, to you, straight guys, to, to them. But no, this also just sort of gets shunted off into the women's issue category of public discourse as if women aren't 51 percent of the population and an even a greater percentage of that of the electorate. As if birth control pills, again, were something that only lesbians needed. Only women in the Women's Music Festival in Michigan, they're the only ones who use that shit. So why should anybody who has a dick care? And square this circle for me. You have Republicans doing everything in their power to monkey wrench the part of the ACA that mandates birth control coverage be a part of everyone's health care package. Doing all they can to knock birth control pills out of the hands of women. You've got this huge chunk of the Republican base, right-wing religious conservative wackadoos who are attacking access to birth control. It used to be that people who were against abortion were pretty pro-birth control because birth control correctly used prevents unwanted pregnancies and preventing unwanted pregnancies prevents wanted abortions. But now the Republican Party is retooling. They're the enemy of birth control. They're also the enemy of people having too many babies. Rand Paul, who is going to run for president and will probably do well, said last week that women who have, quote, too many children should lose welfare support. We have to say, says Rand Paul, enough's enough. You shouldn't be having kids after a certain amount. So maybe, Rand, Mike, we should stop lecturing women about their libidos, stop encouraging women to put an aspirin between their knees and call that birth control and make sure every woman who wants birth control gets birth control as a part of her health care package. Seems to me you can't be against birth control and against women having a lot of babies. Seems to me you can't be against access to abortion and against supporting women who have children that they cannot afford to take care of and raise themselves. One or the other, Republican douchebags. I know women get upset about this. Women are screaming and yelling all over the internet about Mike Huckabee's comments. I'm mystified that straight men don't get upset about this. Who's having sex with women who are using birth control? Straight men. Who is being protected from an unwanted pregnancy, an unplanned pregnancy? Not just the women, guys. You. Whether you're married to her and you're going to be with her forever and you already have a couple of kids but you can't afford anymore or whether it's a one-night fucking stand and you hope never to see her again and you don't want to be on the hook for the next 18 fucking years for child support payments, you guys, dudes, this birth control coverage package is for you too. And you need – guys, you need to get in the faces of the Mike Huckabees and the Rand Pauls. And in the end, of course, it all comes back to fucking. What they're really against, what they're really worried about is somebody out there is having sex for fun. Mike Huckabee opposes that sex for fun libido shit because I don't think anyone who's ever had sex with Mike Huckabee was in it for the fun. So maybe he's just angry at everybody else out there who's getting laid for fun. Maybe it's just that women in the presence of Mike Huckabee have never had a problem controlling their libido and he can't conceive of a scenario in which a woman would have difficulty controlling her libido. But, but what it's really about, what they, when they say shit like that, what they mean is stop having sex. They just want to live in a world where nobody has sex except once or twice in their life or 22 times if they're the Duggars to make a baby. 
Sex for pleasure is never allowed. That's why they oppose access to birth control. It's why they oppose access to abortion. It's why they oppose equal pay for women because empowered women can make their own reproductive choices, make their own sexual choices. It's why they oppose gay marriage and gay people, our existence because our sex is purely recreational. It is not exonerated by puppies ever. You would think that having lost the governor's mansion in Virginia by running a candidate on an anti-oral sex platform that sooner or later the Republicans are going to get it and they're going to have to drop their opposition to human sexuality, that this can't be the hill they intend to die on over and over and over again and forever because people like this sex stuff and people are going to keep having this sex stuff. Not with my Huckabee but with other people because again, nobody has any trouble controlling their libido around Mike Huckabee. I just wonder how much longer a political party that's at war with human sexuality can con humans into supporting it, voting for it, voting for their candidates. Ever increasingly small numbers are voting for their candidates, as we saw in Virginia. Mind-blowing. And now your calls. Dan, I need some help. How do I get over an ex? My ex and I broke up almost a year ago, but we've continued to talk. We've hooked up a couple of times. During both times have been when we were with other people. We both have a new significant other, and things are going good with each other's respective partners, but we both still have feelings for each other. And my feelings are very strong for him, and he claims that he has the same feelings for me. But the difference is that I would be willing to end my current relationship and make and make the changes needed to get back together with him and try to make it work again. I would do that. However, he's saying that because we fought and had a lot of problems during our relationship in general, he's saying that he doesn't think that it would work a second time around, that things would still be the same. I don't agree with that. I think that circumstances are different now. I was going through a divorce and a stressful time at that point, and now I'm free and better, but he's convinced that nothing would change. However, I, I don't get how he can tell me that I'm his favorite person. He's still in love with me. He still has the same feelings for me, but yet he doesn't want to give it another shot. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should just cut all ties with him and stop talking to him until I can have strictly platonic feelings or if I should continue this pseudo friendship that we have and hope that one day he'll realize he wants to be with me. The first rule of getting over an ex is stop fucking your ex. The second rule of getting over your ex is stop talking to your ex. Now, why would he tell you uh, that you're still his favorite person, that he still loves you, has some feelings about you, and yet he is dating other people and has no desire, apparently, to get back together? Well, because he knows that you still love him and you're still into him and probably the quickest way to get into your pants whenever the fuck he wants into your pants, including when you are seeing someone else and so is he, is to tell you what you want to hear, but not everything you want to hear, just enough, just enough to fill you with hope that if you fuck him this time, he'll come to his senses, drop the girl he's with now and run off with you and live happily ever after. I hate to be so cynical and dark, but sometimes you got to be 
a little cynical and dark. Sometimes you got to look at what somebody is telling you versus what they're doing. And when he tells you he feels as strongly for you as he did when you were together but refuses to get back together with you, that means he doesn't feel that strongly about you anymore. But he knows that telling you that he does is the quickest way into your pants. And so you're being manipulated and used and exploited a little bit. He's keeping his hooks into you. And you need to stop seeing him. You need to get the fuck away from him. You need to call his bluff. If he loves you and he wants to see you, there's only one way for him to get to do that, which is to give you what you want, which is a relationship. Or give the relationship another chance, at least. If he's not willing to do that, if he's incapable of doing it, doesn't want to do that, don't talk to him. Don't fuck him. And that is how you get over an ex. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 34-year-old male. And... uh I, you know, I consider myself to be GGG and I never really have that many problems in the bedroom, but I recently got out of a relationship with a woman who, you know, she really enjoyed everything that we did in bed and, you know, she was able to orgasm and, you know, the sex was pretty great. But at the end of the day, she said that there was just something that was kind of missing. There was like a spark or something like that. And upon further probing, come to find out that it's partially because I'm kind of awkward and I guess what it really boils down to is I sort of lack a little bit of sexual confidence. And so I guess my question is, you know, what would you recommend or is there anything you can think of to, you know, kind of help someone improve their sexual confidence? Um, You know, I feel like most people get kind of awkward when they're with someone, at least for the first time. Um, But, you know, even after being with someone for quite a while, I guess there's still some awkwardness there for me. So when you when you say you know there's still some awkwardness even after that first time, what do you mean? That that's a little vague. Like specifically, what do you mean? Well, you know, it's kind of it's somewhat hard to articulate. I mean, I mean, it certainly is like a lack of confidence. Okay, but, um, but what does that mean? A lack of she's there. She's already fucked you once. She wants to fuck you again. What do you have to be unconfident about? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's that my my head is more in it than my heart, or you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it too much. Mm-hmm. Are you worried about how you know she's going to feel if you make a certain move? Are you worried about what your own desires look like? Um, I think it's a little bit of everything. I guess it's probably certainly it's tied to anxiety in general. Anxiety about um, anxiety about what? I guess you know, pleasing the other person as well as getting what I want, and maybe being uncertain as to how to communicate those things back and forth to each other because we don't know each other that well. Sometimes a problem can come in with confidence in how someone is interpreted in a, in a sexual encounter when they feel like, here's what I want, these are my desires, I know what they are, but I feel insecure about expressing them or I feel like I don't have the right to ask this of another person. That I'm somehow, by rolling out my desires and what I would like to do in bed, being unfair to that person. And a lot of like considerate, sensitive, feministy guys really have that hang up. They really have a problem because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be sexist. They don't want to treat a woman like an object. They don't want to be a bad guy. And then right. that, and that, can, that certainly is part of it for And me. that can make a guy very hesitant in bed. And that makes the guy not a bad guy, but a bad lay. Because what we want right. from a sex partner and what a lot of women want, you read the research, please pick up Daniel Bergner's uh, latest book, uh, What Do Women Want?, 
what a lot of people want, particularly women want, is to be taken, is to be mm-hmm. sort of swept off, you know, a, a guy who's being swept away by his own passion and desire for it. That doesn't mean somebody wants to be raped. That doesn't mean somebody wants non-consensual things to happen. That doesn't mean that somebody wants the person not to read their physical cues or solicit their uh, opinions uh, or be, you know, uh, up for fulfilling their fantasies too. But somebody wants to know that they're inspiring such lust in you that you are taking your pleasure from them. And particularly women want that. So if you're sitting there wringing your hands about what I'm allowed to do and you have a sort of mother may I approach to rolling out your desires, that's going to be off-putting to a lot of women. Well, I mean, you know, it's not quite that bad. But I, but your point is well taken. Well, let, let me finish um, that point for others, <laughs> just quickly, because okay, sure. you the balance you want to strike is between somewhere in between mother may I and I'm so into you that I'm a little like passion full of desire going to take right. We want to be with somebody mm-hmm. who wants us that badly that they're a little not out of control but a little on that edge right where you're inspiring mm-hmm. such lust and passion and desire that they're kind of rolling over you a little bit. But sensitive to your physical cues and what you're giving them back and willing to be rolled over somewhat themselves. So if that's not entirely the problem, I just wanted to finish that thought for others. I didn't want people then to like pounce on someone thinking that's what all they had to do to be a a terrific lover. If that's not your issue, what is your issue then? Well, I think that – so that that is certainly part of it. But I think in the context of – you know, in the context of a relationship, it's a little bit easier. But if it's – something a little bit more casual, I think it's a little bit harder to, or at least for me, it's harder for me to play those sorts of cards without feeling like, oh, well, I might be judged for this. Um, mm-hmm. which, judged, for, judged, for, I, judged for what? Well, judged for what I might want. And what is it that you want? Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm not terribly complicated or... Um, there's nothing you want yeah. from column C. Are you a strictly column A and column B guy, like vaginal well, and rolling yeah, around I mean, and oral sex and sure kissing? All of the above. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not into like I'm not a fetish guy or anything like that. Um, but I'm certainly willing if someone wants to do that to you know. I consider myself GGG. Um, I, I I am getting to the point where I am frustrated with you too. Perhaps like you're most recent girlfriend because I can't figure out what the fuck you want because you won't tell me. You're having a really hard time articulating to this faggot with the podcast that you called who you are sexually and what it is you're after. And if you have a hard time telling me when there are literally no stakes in this conversation. Well, I'm also I'm also in my office at work. Oh, yeah, um, I did catch you at a bad time. Sorry about that. Please um, scream at the no, top no, of no, your no, lungs I mean, what it is that turns you on and your office at work. Well, yes. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I guess it is kind of me being a little bit more instructional and, you know, having someone do kind of what I'm asking or what I'm telling them, instructing them to do. Um, so you like to call the shots. I like to call the shots. But you feel that you, you worry that if you start rolling that out, that she might be annoyed or she's not into being with somebody who's that prescriptive or shot cally. So, yeah. so you get insecure about if I start being who I really am sexually, it will turn her off. Yes. And the end result of you not being who you really are sexually is she's turned off because all she senses right. is you're holding back. Right. So what you need to do is just be 
upfront about that. Use your words, like we like to say on the podcast where we use nothing but words. Use your words. Like when you guys get to that sort of flirty stage of gonna go there, like you you're hooking up, you went on a couple of dates, you can roll out in a sexy way. Like I kinda like to be in charge and better. I really like to call the shots. And if that's not something she's into, she will tell you. And then She'll let me know. she will let you know. And what you will have established in that moment is we are not a match. And then it's over. But right. what if that's what she, what if that's what she wants? And that is what a lot of women want. And oh my God, people are going to be mad at me for saying this. But you read the literature, you read the research. It is what a lot of women want. They want to be with somebody. It's what a lot of men want. It's what a lot of everybody wants. They want to be with somebody who knows what they want and takes it and goes for it and is willing to call the shots a little bit. And it's certainly expected, I think, in, in more traditional opposite sex sexual encounters. Where the guy is going to go for it, and the woman is going to, you know, he's going to take, she's going to be taken. Right. And a lot of women want to be taken, so you're insecure about your desires, which are Nothing. actually, which are actually match really well, yin yang, with a lot of women's desires. So you just got to fucking own it. The trick, just though, the, the, yeah. no, no, I'm not saying just go for it because a woman who doesn't want to well, be no, taken no, no, that I mean, way, just be a, put the fear away and just. Be upfront about it. Like who you are sexually in bed is I like to call the shots. I like to be in charge. Not that I don't want to hear what you want. Not that I don't want to do what you want too, but I really like to roll it out. And some women may go, you know, that doesn't work for me. And then you go, well, thank you very much. It was nice. We had a, that was a nice time. And thanks for the makeout session, but we're not going to be a match then necessarily. But a lot of women are going to go Yahtzee. Awesome. My last boyfriend was such a hand-wringing, sensitive, new-age guy that I couldn't figure out what he wanted. So please, just do what you want. <laughs> All the while, being sensitive to the feedback you're getting, being solicitous, asking questions about what's okay, what's not okay, what do you want? Because you can do both. You can mm -hmm. take what you want, and you can make sure you're asking after what they want. And you can hit their mm -hmm. marks and get your bits, too. Right. But if you're if you're wringing your hands, there's nothing duller. I'm a dude who sleeps with dudes. There's nothing duller than being in bed with a man who is afraid to go for it because he doesn't want to scare you. Because mm -hmm. you two things happen. You're like you're like this is boring, and you're so inhibited that I'm now I'm inhibited because inhib. In well, yeah, you've went and made it weird. Yeah, because that kind of inhibition is contagious. And then they think, well, what is it that you want that's so terrifyingly scary that you're afraid of letting me know what it is? You want to cut off my head and shit down my throat? Like, what the fuck is it? Like, you'll, you'll assume so much worse. That's what I did when we were talking right. earlier. I was like, what is this guy after? What is it that he wants? That's yeah. so fucking freaky that he's afraid. And it turns out that all you want is to, like, be the top. All you want is to, like, be in charge. That's yeah, what, I mean, that, that's what a lot of people want. That's what a lot of men and women want from their sex partner is to be taken, to be with somebody who's the top, who's going to throw them around, who's going to be in charge. Please read Daniel Bergner's What Women Want. And then remember that individual results may vary and the woman that you're with might not be average or standard mm -hmm. or might not might want you know you to roll over them and take what you want from them one night and might want something very different the next night. All you have to do is communicate. But your desires are not terrifying, and you should no. throw them on the table with confidence. Well, thanks, Dan. You're welcome. No more hand wringing. No more hand wringing. Which is not—I'm not saying you know, pounce on someone and make love to her on her father's library sofa, which no. is a which is a reference to a scene in Cabaret, which everyone should go rent. 
I'm not saying pounce. I'm not saying I don't want to put people in a situation where they accidentally. I don't want to put people in a situation. I don't want to create accidental sort of sexual assaults, right? We don't want to do that. We want to use our words. We want to communicate. We want to be solicitous. We want to be sensitive to the feedback we're getting verbally and non-verbally. But we also want to be who we are and throw it out there because who you are is something that a lot of women want. So stop mm-hmm. being so inhibited about putting it on the table. Will do. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. Um, so I'm a 29-year-old female um, from Southern California. I'm in a very happy monogamish marriage. Recently, I decided to try and live out this, uh, you know, sexy guest star in someone else's relationship uh, fantasy. So I answered an ad on Craigslist and met up with a couple. They were really cool. I found them both pretty attractive and... Um, we hung out, we had fun, so we went back to his place, and everything seemed to be going just remarkably well, and uh, while we were having, her and I were playing around, uh, she kept saying, like, I want to see you fucking, I want to see you guys together, like she said it several times, so we did, like, you know, uh, and not long after we started, like we were at it maybe a minute or two before she got up and went to the bathroom. Another couple minutes went by and we stopped because we were like, huh, she's been gone a while. And then um, a little bit after that, she slams open the bathroom door, fully dressed and storms out of the room and leaves. And um, so he goes after her and I'm just laying on the bed. I was not super surprised. I've into swing parties or, and, um, you know, swinger clubs. And it's not the first time somebody stormed off during group sex. So uh, I didn't want to, like, judge these people. I didn't know them very well. So I was like, well, God knows I've, you know, made a few drunken scenes in my life. Like, you know, whatever. She's just, she's just upset. He seemed to know immediately what was going on. Uh, he was like, oh, she's gone to lock herself in the bathroom. Like, okay, well waited a couple minutes just wondering how long you lay on someone's bed naked <laughs> way before you just get dressed and go home. Um, but after a few minutes, I just, you know, just was like, okay, well, I tried to coax her out of the bathroom just to help a guy out. It was not successful. And I went home. Both of them were texting me like crazy on the way home. Um, he called me. Uh, they, they were both was obviously in the middle of whatever weird relationship thing they were having. And um, so now I'm kind of wondering, they both, the next day they both begged me to do it again. And I said yes. And I'm just wondering, should I do this again? Like, I had a lot of fun. And it was really not that big a deal that they got in a fight. Like, I didn't get in a fight with anybody. And I still had sex. I went home and had sex with my husband. And... So uh, I just wonder if I should do this again. They obviously have some problems. Um, you know, when he called me on the way home, he mentioned like, like, oh, maybe she's jealous because him and I have been talking about comic books and like stuff we had in common that she didn't have in common with him. And he was like, oh, maybe she was jealous of that or because like you're tighter than her. And I was kind of like, oh, God, man, don't tell me that. Like, I, yeah, if you say things like that, she might be more jealous. Um, but um uh, I, I really want to do it again. My husband and I have been having a lot of fun with this, and 
it doesn't hurt me any to go again, even if they get in a fight. You know, am I just like going in and causing problems in someone else's relationship? Because it's fun for me. Like, should I not, uh, should I just ignore that this may cause problems for other people? Uh, or is it, you know, kind of like their problem, not mine? I don't know. Well, I'm probably going to do it again, but I just want to know how guilty I should feel. So your question, which is very long, it all boils down to should you do this again? And you don't have to do this again. You're a 29-year-old woman. You're a unicorn. Unicorns are rare and in great demand. There are more couples out there looking for unicorns than there are unicorns for the couples looking for them, which means you can write your own ticket, which means you can churn through a lot of couples until you find a low or no drama couple and you can be their magic unicorn. But if you're not bothered by the drama and you want to fuck them again – Go ahead, I guess, and fuck them again. This kind of drama would scare off most unicorns. Most people don't want to be the cause of or trapped in the middle of a fight between partners where they seem to be the catalyst. If that doesn't bother you, go ahead and fuck the dude again and lean back in bed while they have their little firework display. Um, There are some couples out there who this is part of it for them. Whether or not they can admit it, they, they go out, they, they find a third, they have a three-way and it always ends in drama and somebody getting dressed and storming out and then they do it again and they do it again and it keeps happening and they keep doing it again anyway. And at a certain point, you have to look at them and go, well, clearly you're enjoying the drama too. It's not just the sex. It's not just the three-way. That the drama gets your blood going, that you like to have this fight and then reconcile after. And if I'm the catalyst for the sex that you enjoy but also the fireworks and bullshit and drama that you also must enjoy, otherwise you would close your relationship, well then, so be it. But most unicorns in your situation wouldn't return to their home, to their bed, wouldn't put themselves in the middle of all this bullshit again. All that said, who knows? Maybe this has never happened before. Maybe every other time they've been with a third, there was no drama, there was no bullshit, and this was a one-off, and coincidentally, it was your first time with them where they had this uncharacteristic drama and you may go next time and it'll go wonderfully and you can go again and again and there'll never be drama again because the drama isn't who they are and it was an accident or a dirty look or something went wrong and there wasn't good communication and now they fixed it or it's not usually a problem. But if you go and it happens again, I promise you it'll happen every single time and eventually you'll get sick of it. And you'll move on, which will be more of a problem for them because it's harder to find a unicorn than it is to find a couple than it will be for you because you are the unicorn. Hi, Dan. I am a happily married 40-something woman. And my husband and I are calling with a question about some very dear friends of ours. We've known this couple since our kids were young. They're now teenagers, so since they were early elementary school, and they've been kind of our go-to couple all these years that we spend a lot of time together, vacations and things of that nature. The couple just broke up, and they're going through um, what the woman is calling a trial separation, and the man is pretty sure is over. Um, And we've come to find out, my husband mainly, who's really good friends with the man, that he has been cheating on her with someone kind of steady um, for some time, and um, the wife has no idea. He had a series of indiscretions, quote-unquote, throughout their marriage and has 
said that he's addicted to um, women and he'll never tell his wife because he doesn't want her to have old hurts um, or hurts over old you know, moments in their relationship. And it would just make it really ugly for everyone if it were to come out. Well, this couple is such good friends with us that we're, you know, now I know this as, um, and, and my husband knows this and my husband is basically not been able to stay friends with him. He's had to confront his friend and say, look, I can't, you need to tell um, your wife, what's going on, your ex-wife or whatever, what's going on. She deserves to know. And he is not eagerly coming clean with her. Um, we're about to go on a vacation with them in like a month where we would all be in the same house. And I feel like I'm betraying my girlfriend at this point. Um, my husband has basically cut off ties. He said that I can't do this with you to be your friend while your wife doesn't know. I feel like it's unfair to her. They have some other dynamics going on too. And what my question is, is should it is, do I have a place here? I mean, it's killing me. Like I go to exercise class with her and I know something she doesn't, she's trying to figure out what happened in their relationship. And, and I want to say to the guy, like, look, you tell her or I do. And I swear I heard you say that before Dan. And I just don't know what I'm supposed to do to be a good friend and keep my nose out of where it doesn't belong. And also just to take care of her and, and I don't know, to, to be able to be around them without feeling like a creep myself, because I'm not, I have information that I feel like she would want. What do I do, Dan? I'm just going to put myself in your shoes. The only thing that would hold me back, the only thing that would, give me second thoughts about just going to my friend and telling her what I know is the fact that these two people have children together and there are going to be times when they have to co-parent, when they have to be in the same room together, when they have to set aside their feelings uh, for and about each other uh, and focus on their kids' feelings and focus on being still mom and dad, even if they are not still husband and wife. And this info is going to nuke that. This info may leave your friend so devastated and, and, and legitimately angry and upset that she can't be in the same room with her ex-husband for now or for a long while or perhaps ever again. And that's going to put her children in a terribly awkward position where they're going to want to maintain a relationship with both of their parents and if both of their parents can't both come to a party or a wedding reception or a baby shower or whatever – it's just going to be hugely awkward for them. That said, my higher loyalty, if I were in your shoes and these were my friends, I think would be to my friend and not to her kids in this instance. And here's why. Your friend doesn't know why her marriage is over. And that is going to grow in her like a cancer. That is going to eat away at her. Her ex is already with someone else and she is not. She may spend the next two years, five years, 10 years, looking inside, trying to figure out and diagnose what it was about her that prompted her husband to leave her, why she failed, why her marriage ended, what she did wrong, what's wrong with her. And she needs to know that although she's not perfect, no two people are perfect, no individual is perfect, no couple is perfect, she needs to know that it wasn't her. It's not her fault that her marriage is coming apart, that 
it's not anything she did wrong, that she's actually the wronged party here and she doesn't know it. And you and your husband have been pulled into this because of your friend's ex-husband's idiocy and, and, and indiscretion that he shouldn't have shared this information with you if he didn't want it to get back to his ex-wife because it put you two in this impossible position of knowing something that when you look at your friend, you know she needs to know this because it will be healing for her. Even if it inspires a great deal of rage and righteous anger, it will ultimately be healing for her to know what really happened. And so, you know, if I were in your shoes, I would tell. I would sit her down and tell her what I know. And I would not go on this fucking vacation. I would disinvite the ex-husband. What a fucking Ingmar Bergman nightmare scenario film script that is. Tell him he is not invited. And then take her on the vacation. Don't tell her once she gets there. Tell her before the vacation. Disinvite him. And then go and hang out with her and let her scream and yell and laugh and cry and get drunk and cry on your shoulders and take her out and show her a good time and tell her that you will always be there for her because she is a good and decent person and you love her and you are not there anymore for her ex because he is a heel and a shit and he is out of her life and that will ultimately be to her benefit and he is out of yours now as well. Hi, Dan. I'm a woman in my mid-20s, and I have an interesting body issue. So I've lost a total of about 180 pounds, which obviously has changed my entire sex life uh, and dating life. Um, I started dating a man when I had lost about 70 pounds of that, who was wonderful for my body confidence, who loved how I looked, who was the first guy I had dated that I felt wasn't a chubby chaser, who wasn't fetishizing just how I looked, but also liked me as a person. Kind of like one of those good ones that you say we should filter out. Um, we were together for almost two years, and during that time, I lost the rest of that weight. Um, he supported me through the whole thing, though I think he was a little disappointed. He, you know, that I wasn't his ideal anymore, though he did, you know, still care about me. And we parted really amicably and for reasons besides my weight loss. But now I'm in this strange, strange place where I feel unable to date men who like how I look now. I feel like lots of these men would be disgusted by how I used to look. And the idea of dating someone who couldn't have loved me or been attracted to me the whole way through this whole journey, the way that man was, I find that disheartening. It makes me so sad. I feel unable to even have sex with these men. Um, I've had partners since then, one of whom who knew what I had looked like before and had been attracted to me then. And we reconnected and he was attracted to me now. But that's so rare. And I feel it's only people that I knew years ago who qualified for that and how many of those men really exist. So how do I get over this? How do I accept how I look now and understand that the men I'm dating now wouldn't hate me if they knew that I used to be huge? If you're worried the guys you're dating now would be disgusted if they knew that you used to be huge, tell them that you used to be huge. Let them see pictures of when you were huge. Leave them out on the walls in your apartment. Leave them up on your Facebook page. 
then guys who would be disgusted by who you were then, so disgusted by who you were then that they couldn't be with who you are now, those guys will go the fuck away and you'll be well rid of them. This is like having HIV or herpes can be a tool that you can use to sort the good guys from the shitty guys, the guys you want to be with from the guys you don't want to be with. Like I tell my friends who are HIV positive, telling someone you're pause tells them one thing about you. How they react tells you everything about them. So telling them that you used to be big tells you one very important thing about you and and, and your history and and your life and your life experience. How they react tells you everything you need to know in that moment about whether you want to continue to bother seeing them, right? That said, you need to to, to get past this. You need to accept the fact that it's okay for people to be attracted to others based on their physical appearances, based on the externals, based on – the surface. You are theoretically attracted to men based to some extent on the outside. You have a type. There's probably guys you would date and guys you wouldn't date based solely on their appearance, at least initially and at first, right? So guys who date you because you look how you do now aren't doing anything that you yourself don't do when you decide which guys you're going to go out with. It's okay. It's, it's part of it. Physical attraction brings people together and then you date, then you hang out, then you fuck, then you spend time together and you establish whether there's emotional compatibility, not just physical surface, sexual attraction, not just chemical, but uh, emotional compatibility. And then here's what happens. If that emotional compatibility is good enough, tight enough, strong enough, if love grows, you form a bond that then – carries you through the decades and over the decades you both fall the fuck apart age and gravity shreds us all so at some point in the future you are going to be not who you are right now you're going to look very different right and if he's still there that means that he loved you inside and out and hopefully what love does over the very long term is it blinds us. Love is blind. That at a certain point, your partner does not resemble the person that you met and fell in love with decades ago, but you still feel for that person. You still love that person. There's an intimacy and a comfort and a familiarity that still draws from you the same lust and desire, perhaps not as passionately, perhaps not as often, but still it exists there. Those embers are there and that person brings it out in you. Because you love them inside and out. And to love someone inside and out is to know that the outside is going to fall the fuck apart in time. And so you want to establish that inside love. But it's totally fine for that outside to bring people together. There's no other way around it unless you're just going to date people online with whom you do not exchange photographs, just emails and phone calls for decades before you meet The surface brings you together. You have a new surface. You have less surface area than you once did. If you wouldn't want to date somebody who wouldn't have dated you when you were big, let them see photos and they'll take the fuck off. But accept that it is legitimate and it is the way it works that your appearance now attracts the men that you attract now. And let those men love you. Let one of those men love you. Because what other choice do you have? Congrats on your weight loss and congrats on your love life and 
Have fun out there. Hey, Dan, 55-year-old woman with a question about how other people live. Just listen to episode 377 and the young woman who is wondering how can she get uh, men she hooks up with to uh, remember that she gets to come to. You gave her good advice. And this leads me to wondering. I've been uh, happily married to the same man for a couple of decades now, and it's well established that when we make love that I come as often as I want to, and after I've had, you know, six to zero orgasms or whatever is on the menu that day, then he has the best one that he and I can help him to have. Well and good. We all know how that works. Uh, And before he showed up in my life, uh, I was sleeping with people in the 70s and 80s, and it was a given that my orgasm was important, both personally and politically, and if he didn't know that, then he didn't get invited back for a return performance because we were not politically at one. Okay, well and good. Figured out the gender roles when it's a man and a woman. Here's what I'm wondering. If there's two men, either in a relationship or in a hookup, how does this get figured out? Is it a given that one of the two guys is just more of a roadkill after he comes than the other, and so the first guy gets to come first, the way it is with my husband and me? Is it a matter of a race to the finish line? Is it a matter of after you, sir? No, no, after you. How does this get figured out? And then how does this get figured out when it's two guys just coming together uh, of who gets to come first? Anyway, my husband's roadkill, and I'm listening to the podcast because I'm not quite asleep yet. And I just wonder, how does this happen when gender doesn't point the way toward inevitability? In my book, Skipping Towards Gomorrah, The Seven Deadly Sins in America, in the chapter on lust, I actually wrote about this, that women are potentially sexually insatiable. The more orgasms a woman has, the more she can have. She is potentially sexually limitless. She can come and come and come and come and come and come and come. And once you get an orgasmic woman rolling, there's really literally no end to her orgasmic capacity, I think was the uh, the phrase one of the researchers I quoted used. And I read that and thought, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm gay. I'm so glad I'm with dudes. I'm so glad that after I have my pathetic solo single little orgasm and he has his pathetic single solo little orgasm, we can both go to fucking sleep. We know when we're done. And so here's how it works. You know, we, we know that. You, you have one and done. We're one and done. Although there are some guys who have a sort of a mutation, I guess, where they don't release the hormone prolactin when they come. Uh, and so they don't have what's called a refractory period. They can come and come and come and come. And I was with one of those guys once and it was to hair a fucking fying, I have to say. I was impressed. He never lost his erection and he could shoot and shoot and shoot. It was spooky. It was like being with a lady, I guess. Uh, but here's what we do typically when two guys get together. You time your orgasms. You try to roughly align them. Or one guy, after he comes, just sort of pushes through the prolactin haze. He may lose his erection. But you know, sometimes we overstate how sleepy a guy gets after he comes. He loses interest in sex after he comes. I talked about this in my column, Savage Love, last week. A guy will lose interest in sex. But a guy shouldn't lose interest in basic courtesy after he comes. So just because you've lost interest in sex, just because your dick isn't hard, doesn't mean you can't mentally stay in the game, stay engaged, get your partner off. So you come, he hasn't come yet. That's how it works in Gayland. So let's say you were fucking that person and 
they weren't in a position where they could stroke themselves or it wasn't working for them to try to time their orgasm with your orgasm. So you've come and he hasn't come. What do you do? You keep it up. Not your dick. You just keep the sex play up. You shift to giving that guy a blowjob or you hold that guy or play with his tits or play with his ass while he jacks himself off and you talk dirty and you stay in the game. You sort of will yourself to stay sexually engaged, even though part of your brain is thinking, all right, now hurry up and finish. Here's what I'm going to do and say to get you off so we can be done, so we can turn on the TV or we can go have some fucking ice cream or we can read. But I, if that comes across, I'd rather be reading. I'd rather be eating ice cream. I'd rather be watching The Daily Show. That's going to be a huge turnoff. That's going to actually make the guy take even longer to come or the guy's going to get mad and not come at all and then never come back at all. And you might want that guy to come back. So you stay in the game, you stay present, you keep going. He comes, you throw a towel at him, and you go get the ice cream. That's how it works in Gayland. We're going to take a brief break here uh, from calls and questions, but we will get back to calls and questions in just a second. Uh, and we're going to try something new here on the podcast. Maybe it'll be a semi-regular segment where we just interrupt the show randomly somewhere in the middle to have a conversation about something that's very important to a great many Americans, but a subject we've given short shrift on this program, and we're going we're gonna to fix that now. Uh, we're going to have on the show my brother Billy, and we're going to have a quick conversation about sports. Bill Savage is a distinguished senior lecturer in English at Northwestern University, where he is also an advisor in the dean's office of the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences. He writes about sports for ChicagoSideSports.com, reviews books for the Chicago Tribune, edits books for the University of Chicago Press, and his most recent book project was co-editing and annotating Chicago by Day and Night, The Pleasure Seeker's Guide to the Paris of America. And he joins us by phone. Bill Savage. Hey, Bill. It's Dan Savage. Hello, Dan Savage. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Okay, so you've, you've been on the podcast before, but we are not having you on this week to give sex advice, and we're not having you on this week just because you fell out of the same vagina that I fell out of once upon a time, but because you know something about something that suddenly everyone in Seattle where I live is required to know something about, and I know nothing about it, and you are going to educate my listeners who are also similarly ignorant about this thing that we all have to be experts on now. Do you know what thing I'm talking about? Um, this wouldn't happen to be um, a thing straight guys like like sports. Like a particular or, a particular kind of sport. Oh, couldn't be hockey. It's too early in the season. Let me see. Your basketball team went to some horrible red state. Baseball. No, it must be the Super Bowl. Yes, the Super Bowl. It's happening. The, the Seahawks are in the Super Bowl, and someone needs to explain football to my listeners. And so we have some sporty sport music we just played to, to inaugurate the inaugural sports segment of the Savage Love Podcast. So here we go, Billy. Football. <laughs> you have 30 seconds. What the fuck? Football. What the fuck? Uh, football is a combination of uh, ballet and uh, death sports. <laughs> and death sports? Death sports. Yes, they're trying to kill each other. It's like demolition uh, derby with humans. Um, or mixed martial arts with helmets. This is increasingly a problem for football. There's all sorts of uh, news reports now about long-term damage that football players are doing to their brains, concussions, and their brains dribbling out their ears after their retirements, and, and people dying and committing suicide. So it's not actually that funny? Well, no. In 20 years, 
the game will not be recognizable to people today. Um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is going to change everything, but that's not going to happen before next Sunday <laughs> when the Super Bowl is going to happen. The, the game next Sunday, this coming Sunday, actually, will be recognizable. They're not going to change the rules by Sunday. So what are we going to see when we turn on our TVs? What do we need to um, know? I'm praying for snow. I'd love to see the Super Bowl with all the, the rich corporate people in the stands be just covered with snow, but that's probably not going to happen. Um, what you're going to see is you're going to see the Seattle Seahawks and Denver Broncos beat the living daylights out of each other. Do things that if you did it to somebody waiting in line for their morning coffee, you would be arrested and thrown in jail and they would be hospitalized. But one of the reasons why I like sports, despite knowing that I shouldn't because I'm a, a intellectual and all that stuff, is sports fits into the same category for me as opera or ballet or theater or music. It's something people do and some people are really good at it. Mm-hmm. So it's good to watch them and take pleasure out of them being so good at what they're doing. Actually, it's just like pornography on some level, I suppose, that way, too. <laughs> well, there's also, I'm, I'm totally serious about the pornography thing. I, I did an essay on this at Paper Machete here in Chicago. In our brains, there are things called mirror neurons, where when we watch something, it, part of our brain fires as though we were doing what we're watching, mm-hmm. like literally exactly parallel. Um, so that's why when we watch Macbeth or Othello, we are going through the sort of tragic catharsis because we, we feel like we're Desdemona or we're Othello or we're Hamlet or whoever. Um, same thing happens in theater. You go to the theater and you, you are in some ways on stage as you watch it. Mm-hmm. And same thing with sports. You are, I mean, when people are jumping up and down, like parts of their brain are firing as though they were running downfield and catching that ball or tackling that ball carrier or throwing that football. So there's something fundamental about it. This is why straight porn is so traumatic for me and gay porn is so traumatic for you. Yes, exactly. That part of my brain doesn't want to fire. <laughs> <laughs> Nor does the cunnilingus part versa. of my brain. Um, and vice versa. <laughs> now, just to, to give your credentials, you have season tickets to the Bears. You've been a lifelong sports fanatic. You cover sports. Uh, you, you write about sports. Um, right, for chicagoside.com. Well, again, I, I, I'm totally serious when I put it in the same category as the arts or food. You know, we like to go to restaurants where people will know how to cook and make us really good meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to throw a baseball around but I couldn't do anything that any professional baseball player can do. Same thing with football. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun to throw a ball, run around, knock each other down, but these guys are really good at that. They are the best on the planet. So watching the Super Bowl is the equivalent of watching, you know, the CSO doing a, doing a, a Beethoven symphony. It's one category of things people do, and these are the best people on the planet at doing that. And that's why I think, structurally speaking, sports is very similar to all these other cultural endeavors. And there are people out there like me. I mean, I've got Bears and Cubs season tickets, but also subscribe to a bunch of theaters and I read books. I mean, it's not like it's got to be an either-or proposition, although people in various corners of the culture act like it is. You know, People are surprised if there's gay people watching sports or straight people at the opera. So when all the potheads in Washington State and all the potheads in Colorado tune in to watch our two teams play for some fucking reason that I don't understand in New fucking Jersey, what do we need to know? Those of us who don't know anything about the game... What should we be watching for? Um, what you should be watching for is uh, helmets flying off and violence. You're looking for, okay, um, George, George, all of your readers should go onto YouTube and, and find George Carlin's classic baseball versus football comic routine. And he talks about how, you know, baseball is this gentle American sport where the goal is to go home, right? And you, you play in a park, and it means you don't play. Whereas football, you know, the teams are led by a field general who's going to move his forces downfield and, you know, throw, even if he has to use the shotgun and throw blitzes and bombs. And, you know, it's, it's very much a violent warlike thing. Um, the only smart thing George Will ever said 
was that football combines the two worst aspects of American culture, violence and committee meetings. Um, <laughs> because between, between every play, the, the players were, you know, stand a little circle on the guy in charge who's the quarterback, tells them what they're going to do, and then they go out and try to do it while the other team tries to stop them. Um, you could think of it as it's the Tea Party Republicans versus John Boehner. Okay. You know, one, one team is trying to do something, and the other team is trying to stop them. And they will, they will keep messing each other up every chance they get. And what's the key? You've been to a lot of Super Bowl games, Super Bowl parties over your life. What's the key to enjoying the Super Bowl if you don't give a fuck about football? Well, I think the food is the key. Um, I'm having people over. I'm going to make some uh, nice pork chops on the grill. People love to watch the uh, commercials. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care about the Oscars, but you go to an Oscar party. People have Oscar parties, and you go, and you eat the food, and you make small talk about movies, and you do whatever you want to do. So if you don't care about football, you're at least in the two states where you can just eat Doritos and get high and not worry about it. <laughs> right? if, you're, if you're in the room, you are supporting your team. If, you're, if you've got the TV on and you're thinking about it, that's all you've got to do. And if, if, all, if your friends like it more than you do or know more than you do, so what? I mean, who cares? It's an excuse to have a party. And now since this is a sex program, before we let you go, let's try to bring this back to sex. Is there okay. some sort of sex angle to football when heterosexual football fans... I went to the championship for whatever the league or division is here in Seattle last week, and it was one of those moments where you go, this is America, so much athletic wear, so few athletes, right? This is a stadium <laughs> full of people wearing athletic wear who don't look like they've lifted anything heavier than a beer in the last 25 years, right? But they so made the size of beers bigger. So you get more of a workout. So it just doesn't seem to be a lot of sexual energy or heat in the stadium. It seems like kind of a white, pudgy, middle-aged sort of pursuit and drunken thing. And there's not a lot on the field. Like, the guys aren't that hot with the exception of the kicker or punter or whoever he is for the Seattle. My, it, my it, Seattle Seahawks boyfriend, he's hot. The guys aren't that good looking. So it's not like... It's a, let me let me finish my gay thought. It's not like basketball where they're kind of hot and sweaty. It's not like European soccer where they're beautiful men running back and forth, showing a lot of thigh. Like, like what's the sex angle on football, or is there one? And after people watch football, after you watch football, do you like? Are you horny after all this eating and drinking and screaming at the television, or are you? Or is it time to take a nap? Aren't I always? Aren't I always? Well, first of all, the. The football players, while individual football players, I will leave it to you to judge their relative hotness. The uniforms and the equipment used in the game hyper-masculinizes them. They have these incredibly tight pants on with a certain amount of padding, um, and then these big shoulder pads that exaggerate the sort of shoulder-to-waist ratio, and then giant, like, cock heads, which mm-hmm. are the helmets, right? Mm-hmm. So even if, even if these guys aren't hot from your perspective, they, they represent physically a certain kind of generic hyper-masculine ideal. Um, as for the gay hotness, it is the only sport in America where it's successful for one man to put his hands under another man's ass, right? That's how, this, that's how the game begins? Well, the, the, the quarterback stands behind the center and puts his hands directly as though he were about to, um, I don't know, rub something. Anyway, unless he's in the shotgun, in which case the center tosses him the ball several yards away. So the game doesn't begin until the quarterback touches the center's prostate, and that kicks off the whole... Well, that's after the kickoff. I mean, you do need some sort of like hands-off moment. But if you if you watch if you watch it from your perspective, and I think you do this on your Twitter feed, you know, when when straight boys cry, big football games are the only time like straight men are allowed to have emotion and express it to each other in a way that isn't considered creepy. 
So you'll see a lot of hugging and high-fiving, not a lot of kissing. So straight but, guys, you know, they go to the stadium, they watch guys who are hyper-masculinized in these outfits that make them sort of hyper-masculine iconic yeah. figures jump on each other in big piles. Pile and then pile on each And other. then when their team wins, you can touch each other. Straight guys at that yep. moment are allowed to touch each other, but at no and other moment. And you can pet each other on the ass, you can give each other a hug, it's all good. Um, and notice, too, that the, some teams have cheerleaders and... Uh, guys, when you're watching the game, will complain that like the cheerleader shots are always interrupted by the ads. <laughs> you don't really see the cheerleaders that well. Like okay. the, the crawl is right where the bust would be. It's terrible. So before we let you go, who's going to win? Um, I'm calling Seattle 24-21. Wait. You've written in the past, uh, I've read stuff that you've written in the past, about how teams named after birds never win the Super Bowl. And the Baltimore Ravens are not named after a bird. They're named after a palm. Um, I am changing things. I think that uh, Peyton Manning is a little more fragile. I think the Seattle defense is better. And it's been 40-some Super Bowls. Some bird has to win. Although the, the Seahawks are a mythical bird. There's no such bird, really. Mm-hmm. I guess they could be considered as fictional as the Ravens. Okay, you heard it here first. I don't understand anything yeah. you just said, but everybody listening, you heard that here first. Yeah, I'm a literary scholar. I can make anything you want impenetrable and un- un- unmeaningful. <laughs> That's my brother, Bill Savage. <laughs> Thanks for jumping on the phone with us, Billy, and uh, straight splaining and mansplaining this sport. For I'll be. Us. Uh, are we going to be tweeting the Super Bowl live like we did the NFC Championship game? Y- yes, we will. I will be tweeting the Super Bowl live with Luke Burbank and Ken Jennings, just like I did the okay. championship. Okay, all right. Well, I will be tweeting that as well from uh, beautiful suburban Evergreen Park when I'm not manning the grill cooking pork chops. Thanks for jumping on the phone, Bill. All right, love you, back. My brother, Billy. Hi, Dan. I am a 34 year old independent single, successful woman, and I was wondering if you would give me advice about uh, my current lifestyle. Uh, I've had a problem with respect to men for basically my whole life. When I was a teenager, my mother married a man who physically and emotionally abused her, so that was during a very impressionable age, and I grew up just hating men afterwards. Uh, I'm still attracted to them, by the way. Afterwards, I became a dominatrix for a while, and I still do practice domination, but not as a pro. So I actually ended up getting married to someone I loved and gave so much to them, but um, they didn't give back in the same way I did, and except in the form of extreme jealousy and possessiveness. In the year, the past year that I've been separated from my husband, I've taken to basically dating unavailable men, either guys who travel for a living or married guys. I'm just wondering if I should be continuing this lifestyle, which I happen to like, of seeing a man only occasionally, only basically for sex and or, you know, getting something out of them like um, items or a TV or maybe beating them for pleasure or money and not actually dating like a normal girl should be at my age or looking for a boyfriend. I'd much rather live alone, travel alone, and just have my own space and my own time and just having the luxury of seeing a guy occasionally when I feel like it. This I feel like this lifestyle is destroying further my trust in men and 
it increases my disgust knowing that I sleep with married men who are seemingly devoted people and I'm beating them or sleeping with them uh, and all of this is as they're wise or unaware and it makes me feel further disgust. So I don't know if I should really keep living this life or just stop doing what I'm doing so that maybe my trust can be repaired in men. I don't know if that's possible. If you don't want to be in a relationship, and it doesn't sound like you want to be in a relationship, it's not a bad mating strategy then or a sex strategy to fuck or date people who are unavailable. The problem here that I think you're having is you have it in your head that the only people who are unavailable, the only people that you could fuck without any potential strings attached are married men and that these guys are sneaking around on their wives and lying to their wives uh, – doesn't sit well with you. It actually makes you feel kind of shitty. It makes you feel even worse about men than your childhood experiences with your awful stepfather and perhaps your unhappy marriage already conspired to make you feel. But they're not the only guys out there, married guys, aren't the only guys out there with whom you could be having the sex that you're comfortable having right now, this unattached sex. There are guys who are unavailable for relationships who are not in relationships. What you're doing, you know, the, the kind of lifestyle that you describe, a lot of sex partners, no strings attached, uh, you have an active and varied sex life but you have no desire for a relationship at least at this time. If you were a man, this would not be pathologized. You even said it in your call. The kind of sex, the kind of life you're leading, the kind of sex you're having isn't something that a good girl does. It isn't what a normal girl does. But guys do this all the time and nobody pathologizes it because we say to men in our culture, it's fine for you to just be interested in sex and run around and have a million sex partners uh, and not seriously date anybody. Uh, it's fine to be George Clooney, right? We don't say to women, you have that same license. We don't say to women, it's fine if you're interested in sex and you want to fuck a lot of different guys and not form any long-term relationships. It's only okay for women to be sexual if the sex they're having is with somebody that they are with, they're in a relationship with, or it exists on sort of a track that leads ultimately to a relationship. And this puts the zap on a lot of women's heads. And it can be very destructive because then you get women who just want sex, who meet a guy with whom they would like to have sex, but they can't allow them just to have sex with that dude. They have to blow that up into love in a relationship. And to, to get the sex they want, a lot of women get into relationships they don't want or relationships with guys who are shitty. Otherwise, they feel bad about themselves for just having sex, right? So the trick here for you is to find the guys who want the sex, no strings attached sex that you want, who aren't married. And they are legion. There are lots of guys out there who want what you want and don't come with the baggage that makes you feel bad about yourself. The only thing you cite that makes you feel bad about this whole setup is fucking married men. That it tweaks your childhood issues, your shitty stepfather, perhaps your marriage. It just makes you feel bad about yourself, worse about men than you already do. And that may leave you in so bad a place that you could never then be in a relationship in the future because you have an even shittier opinion of men than you already do. So don't fuck those guys. Don't fuck married guys. Fuck single guys who don't want to be in relationships. They exist. They're out there. A lot of them. You don't have to fuck the married ones. And then do what you're doing. You sound happy. You sound content. 
you're only a year out of this marriage. You don't want to be in a relationship, but you want sex. And there's a certain kind of sex that you enjoy. You monetize it to a certain extent and you seem to enjoy that too and you don't seem very conflicted about that. Nor do I think you should be conflicted about that. The only thing you're conflicted about is the fucking married dudes. But you don't have to be fucking married dudes. Stop fucking married dudes. No conflict. Hey, Dan. I work in music production and I've invested a lot of time into the career of an up-and-coming singer who's become a very close friend. I really believe in this guy and we've got a lot of people higher up in the business that are interested in what we release. One of the steps we've taken in launching his career is getting a music video filmed for him, a video in which he's in love with a female lead. He's not out to me or any of the members of our production team, but multiple people have come to us with stories of him having hooked up with guys, him showing up on guys' Tinder matches, etc. We love him and we want him to be open with us, but we don't want to corner him with a bunch of gotcha anecdotes that might feel like accusations. That said, every time we show the video of him in love with a girl, People who know his sexuality don't take our project as seriously. I'm worried his closetedness might undercut the work we put into making a great record. We live in a large city and work with people that are very progressive and LGBT friendly, and him being publicly publicly honest about his sexuality would only help his career. Should one of us have a heart-to-heart conversation letting him know that we know he's gay and that we think him being out will will help his career? Of course, it's ultimately his right to let us know on his terms, but we don't want this project we've all invested in to lose any of its power. Thanks. I hate this call. Uh, not that I, you sound like a wonderful person. You sound very kind and compassionate and, and very caring and worried for your friend uh, and very sensitive. The reason I hate this call is it just puts me in this position of having to violate the prime directive of the coming out process, what we're all supposed to say, all the advice mongers in the world and in LGBT land when you talk about somebody's coming out process, that it's theirs and you have to let them come out in their own time at their own pace and you can never out somebody like a anti-gay congressional Republican with a hundred – with like an anti-gay voting congressional Republican from downstate Illinois with a 0% rating from the human rights campaign. You can never out a douchebag like that. Uh, And you can never turn to somebody who you know to be gay because you've seen them on Tinder or you know people they've hooked up with and you can never go to that person and say, look, you're, you're gay. I know you're gay. Please come out to me already. It's boring having to pretend I don't know what I do now. You're not allowed to do that. Unless you get advice from me because I think you are allowed to do that. I think people know what they damn well do know and we don't have a right to ask people to pretend that they don't know what they damn well do know. And the stakes are actually a little higher here and you have more of a right to not confront him but go to him with what you know because you are making an investment in his public persona as a performer And if he is a figure of ridicule because he's selling himself as one thing in his videos but conducting his private life in such a way that no one is going to take that video or his music seriously and you need people to take his music seriously so that he is successful and you are successful, then you have a right to go to him and say, look, we all know what we know. We all love you. We all support you. Don't know why you're hiding this. You don't need to hide it. If you're gay or bi, could be bi, could still be interested in kissing girls on videos and elsewhere, you never know. That's something you should be open about. It's 2014 and you live in the United States or Canada or wherever you're calling from and not in Nigeria or Uganda or Russia and you don't have to hide this and it's not going to hurt your career in our opinion for you to be open about this. In fact, it might actually help your career 
tell him to Google Steve Grand, who is the first openly gay male country star who released a video on YouTube called All American Boy and completely open about who he is from the start and he's fucking beautiful and it's not hurt him. It's actually really helped him as you think him being open might help your client's career as well. I've gotten in trouble. You should know though that I've gotten in trouble in the past for giving this advice when I've taken questions from a sibling who knows damn well that their sister or brother is queer and their sister or brother won't come out to them or a parent who knows their kid is queer and their kid is now in their 20s and won't come out to them and I've advised them just to go to them and say, look, I know. you." Part of someone's coming out process can be paralyzing fear. They can be so terrified of what their friends or family or colleagues might think. They can be so paralyzed by the fear of rejection that they can't come out. And for them to be told by one of the people whose rejection that they fear that they will not be rejected, that they will be embraced, that they are loved, that can be a crucial part of their coming out process, a part of their coming out process that had to come from outside, that required someone calling the question, someone looking them in the eye and saying, I know what I know and I want you to know that I love you and I want you to know that this is a good thing and you should be out and open about it. And being closeted and silly about it could hurt you, caller, as you should say to your client, because people won't take your music seriously. They'll take you seriously as an openly gay pop star or whatever, but they won't take you seriously as a closeted pop star. So come the fuck out already, at least to us. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about my relationship with my boyfriend. We've been together coming up on three years, lived together. We're both in our mid-20s. He's long expressed wanting to experiment with non-monogamy, um, threesomes and group sex, and I've always been really scared about it and kind of just shut it down. Um, the first issue for me is that he and I have very different sexual histories. He's had 70-plus partners, experimented with all the things I mentioned. He's generally very open and, I think, pretty confident sexually. I, on the other hand, grew up with a congenital deformity that was only visible if I took my shirt off, um, and I didn't have it surgically corrected until my early 20s. And on top of that, my first experience with sex was not consensual. Um, I really shut down sexually until right around the time the two of us met. I tried to take what leaps felt like leaps of faith in terms of engaging in sex, um, particularly after my surgery, but I'd always freeze up and not really know what to do during sex, and that really didn't go well, um, and I felt rejected, which added even more so to the feelings of shame that I'd developed up until that point. Um, I've kind of developed a wall where I can become very threatened by sex, very defensive, even others' sexual interest in me does this, and I've often just gotten turned off and couldn't even get into it anyway. He's the person that I've been most open with and feel more more comfortable than I have ever and more turned on by, but at the same time, I sometimes feel really threatened by his experience and feel kind of inferior to him, and I realize this has a lot to do with my fears about the whole thing. Um... On top of that, sometimes I picture it going down and I start to have a really weird feeling about his role in it. Like, I know this is really messed up, but I'm guessing it comes from having been raped. I start to get kind of rapey vibes from him. He's my partner and my best friend, and it feels really sad that my psyche would even go there. My second issue, just to put it succinctly, I'm super possessive and kind of paranoid. Um, and I don't know how to work around that either. So I'm hoping you could give me some tactical advice on developing some confidence and opening up and shaking off some of my shame-based, defensive, threatened feelings so that 
maybe my boyfriend and I could start to explore the things that he clearly wants to and even I'm becoming more curious about. Thanks, Sam. You need a therapist. You need a counselor. You need a strength. Not me. And I'm not trying to tell you you're sick or damaged or unhealthy, but there are issues here that are going to require more unpacking than we can possibly do in a couple of minutes on the show. Uh, but I will say this. You picked this guy and you need to ask yourself why this guy with your issues um, around having been raped around this congenital deformity that led you to be so self-conscious and um, – shut down sexually for so long, both of those things working together uh, left you feeling so sexually damaged. Why this guy? Why did you pick this guy? Why fall in love with this guy? Why are you with this guy now, knowing what you know about him, the 70 partners and the much more sexually adventurous and the wanting to have three ways? Why this guy? Is he the right guy for you? You know, the text heavy at risk youth, we sat here, listened to your call, and the consensus was why that she should break up with him. They're not right together. And I think that may be true, that maybe he's not the ideal partner for you, that being with somebody who is less sexually adventurous might be safer for you than to be with somebody who's had 70 partners and is very experimental and is now asking his girlfriend, you, for a three-way when his girlfriend is a survivor of rape, um, had these medical issues that made her very self-conscious about her body and is very jealous and possessive and da, da, da. You're not perhaps right for each other and this is constantly going to be an engine for misery, who he is sexually and who you are sexually. Whatever else works for you, that sexually it doesn't work. And sexual compatibility is important in a romantic relationship. You're allowed to prioritize sexual compatibility. Even if everything else is working, if the sex isn't working – then you can end it. You can end the relationship. You're not a bad person for ending the relationship because the sex isn't working, particularly in a culture that tells you you're only allowed to get sex in that primary relationship. You're only supposed to. So that's the text they have received. That's the consensus opinion from the kiddies in the room. But I think listening to your call, I just come back to, again, why him? Why did you pick him? Again, something you need to unpack with a therapist, a shrink, or a counselor. Why him? And I think subconsciously or consciously, you may have picked this much more sexually adventurous person as your partner because you want to be freed sexually, that you want his desires to sort of leverage from you more sexual freedom, more sexual adventurousness. And that's not necessarily fair to him if that's what's going on. Right? If the reason you picked him was knowing in some sense that he would make demands on you that would then force you, if you wanted to stay together, to grow sexually, to become more free and open sexually, that's fine to an extent. But you have to own that if that's what's going on. You can't go there for him, do these things for him and then turn around and be furious with him and resent him. If indeed you p picked him for partly this reason, not just because you got along great emotionally, everything else worked, but sexually you went into this knowing that at some point down the road because of who he was sexually that that might help you get to a better place sexually yourself. That's putting everything – responsibility for your sexual growth entirely on his shoulders and you could own that and you should own that if indeed – that's what you want. If that's not what you want, if you don't want to be in an open relationship, if you don't 
see yourself ever as the kind of person who would want to, of her own accord, not to please her partner, but of her own accord, to have a three-way. He's the wrong person for you. He's the wrong partner. There are guys out there who want less. There are guys out there who are more sexually reserved. There are guys out there who haven't been with 70 people. There are guys out there who aren't as experimental, who won't make the same kinds of demands on you sexually that he is making. And you could be with one of those guys and have more sexual peace and quiet and peace of mind than you can with him. So if you choose to stay with him, you're either choosing to be with someone who's going to make demands on you sexually that make you very uncomfortable and make you very unhappy, which is a bad choice to make, or you're choosing to be with somebody who's going to make these demands on you in part because perhaps you wish to have these demands made upon you because you would like to be freed from some of your reserve and from some of your possessiveness, shyness, inhibitions, trauma. But if that's what you want, do that for yourself. Don't do that for him. If that's the reason you've picked him because he's going to leverage this out of you, you don't have to end it with him but you do have to free him from that. You do have to let that go. If you want to do these things because you want to do them, if you want to get to a more liberated place sexually, a freer place sexually, a much more confident place sexually, that's something you have to do for yourself. And he could still be your partner along the way. And he could still benefit from you getting there. But don't get there for him. Don't put the responsibility for those things on his shoulders. Don't do it for him because then when you hit those inevitable bumps in the road and there will be bumps in the road, there will be Awkward threesomes like the one we heard about earlier. There may be moments where you feel uncomfortable, even violated, and you don't want to then look at him and think, I did this for you, if indeed you weren't doing it for him, if you're doing it for yourself. And to get to the bottom of this and unpack these issues, you really need a therapist or a counselor, not a faggot with a podcast. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I wanted to respond to the 28-year-old gay guy who was attracted to men in his 40s. Well, I want to let him know that I am 29, and all throughout my 20s, I really only wanted to date men in their 40s. And why do I want to date men in their 40s? Because men in their 40s have their shit together. They usually have a job, a career, they're financially stable, they usually have a house, they are settled in life emotionally, they're not in that phase in their 20s where they don't know where they're going in life and who they are, and I have found that the men in their 40s that I have dated are so grateful to be dating someone in their 20s. So I would tell this guy to chill out. There is a market for you. There's nothing wrong with you. You were just attracted to a mature man and men in their forties will appreciate and love you and need you. So good luck. Have fun. Hi, I just was listening to a recent podcast and I stopped it after the rant. Um, I'm a long time listener. I love 
the rants that you always give, Dan. I think they're really helpful. Um, and the one about the midterm elections and voting, I think, is really important. And I just wanted to point out something that I heard recently on a different podcast, I think, The Economist, where they were talking about the importance of voting. And I think one message we always hear is that we should think about those who gave their lives and struggled so hard to give us all the right to vote, whether it's people of color or women. But I just don't think, sadly, that that's a message that resonates anymore. And this person was saying that we should all vote as if this is our last vote. And I think, sadly, we have seen uh, with the with the last midterm uh, elections, as well as recent Supreme Court decisions, that for many Americans, that was their last opportunity to vote. So I would urge everybody to vote as if this is your last vote. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 378 rant. Uh, I'm a straight guy, and I hate football, and I hate basketball, and I hate baseball, and hockey and wrestling and all that stuff. And it's not because I'm trying to indirectly tell people that I hate pussy. Quite the opposite. I love pussy. I hate looking at men. Uh, And in this weird country, how, how strange is it that a bunch of guys get together to sit down and watch a bunch of other guys play with each other, and that's considered straight and manly and he man. But if a guy likes to sit and watch, say, women's gymnastics or women's ice skating, that's considered gay. Isn't that just totally backwards? So anyway, in my book, watching football is totally gay. So enjoy your Super Bowl. I'm going to be doing something else. Anything else. And we're going to leave it there. I want to remind everybody that we're doing a very special live taping of the Savage Lovecast at Seattle's Neptune Theater on Valentine's Day, February 14th. It's going to be a blast. Special guests, songs, comedy. Go to stgpresents.org for tickets to that live taping of the Savage Lovecast, February 14th. Remember, fuck first. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow my brother Bill on Twitter at RogersParkMan. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.